Bonjour, and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfon, and I'm in studio with my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Who is laughing at you, as always, for your, for your welcome of the week. I thought you were going to go with Ola, because... As we oh, right. as we discuss climbing the charts in Panama for some reason unbeknownst to us, according to uh, analytics provided to us by Chartable by Chartable, we're the number two sportscast in Panama sports podcast in Panama. Yeah, so hola to all our listeners in Panama <laughs> who and... would only understand the hello part of that greeting. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we're we're in the studio to chat about a very eventful week and weekend in the NBA. I don't know, maybe I'll, I'll let you decide, Cash, where you want to start, because we got a lot of ground to cover here, and I think we could probably break it down into like three main storylines. Um, one is the coronavirus, and it is sort of continuing to, to spread and affect all sectors uh, of society, basically, um, and that has, of course, seeped into the sports world, and it's going to affect the NBA, and it's already started affecting the NBA. Kenny Atkinson you know, mutually agreed to part ways with the Brooklyn Nets. Yeah, Kenny Atkinson and the Nets are uh, apparently Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin. They, <laughs> they had a mutual uncoupling. Yeah. A conscious uncoupling. And then LeBron and the Lakers, uh, who just had, I think you could say, maybe the most impressive weekend for any team this season. Uh, and we can talk about maybe how that's changed our understanding of the championship race and our conception of what the Lakers are and can be. So... Where, where do you want to start with those three major talking points let's, here? Let's start in Brooklyn. Okay. So Kenny Atkinson, after three and three-quarter seasons, has... And there, there's been a lot of... It's not necessarily conflicting reporting. It does seem like this actually was a mutual agreement, but I think that sort of comes with the caveat that I don't think this is what Kenny Atkinson would have chosen. I don't think he was, you know, expecting or wanting it to come to this, but it seems like he saw the writing on the wall. He wasn't exactly vibing with Kyrie Irving and seemed to have an understanding that the franchise was probably going to go in a different direction at season's end and decided to kind of get out ahead of this thing and go with the you-can't-fire-me-I-quit strategy, you know, whether that's to save face or just to put his name kind of the front of the list when it comes to other potential coaching vacancies around the league, decided that now is the time for him to uh, remove himself from the equation, and now the Nets are are rolling with Jacques Vaughn as their interim head coach for the rest of the season. Um, what, what, What do you feel about this? I think there are very few teams in the league, and I don't even know how many, that whose culture, however you want to, you know, describe whatever a culture is in pro sports, I think there are very few teams in the league whose culture can withstand an incoming superstar, let alone two. Right. And everything that comes with it, the ego, the personality, um, the alpha status, and that's not even necessarily a knock on, on superstars. It's just that's what comes with the territory, especially in the NBA, right, where superstars matter so much. And I think what you probably saw with Kenny Atkinson, who in his few years in Brooklyn, you know, not, he wasn't at all like a taskmaster, not that kind of a dominant coach, but was very much an in-control coach, you know, as many are, and especially with young teams that are starless for the most part. And 
I think that just was no longer going to fly with two superstars in the mix, particularly with these two superstars, okay? And, you know, I don't necessarily blame Kenny Atkinson at all. We don't know enough about what went on there. It quite frankly doesn't seem like anyone really knows enough. The the most we've heard is a couple people report, I think, that DeAndre maybe was unhappy with not starting, and then Jacques Vaughn starts him like in the first game after. Yeah, they sort of gave the game away in that first game. Yeah, and I, I'm not saying that that was like the sole reason behind this, or even necessarily the driving force behind it. But for Jacques Vaughn in his first game as interim head coach to make that change and to start DeAndre Jordan, I think said a lot about what was going on below the surface. And a bunch of people mentioned that. I mean, yeah. uh, Zach Lowe and Kevin Arnovitz on on the Low Post Pod mentioned that as kind of like a source of burbling tension. And then in, there was, uh, you know, Shams Charania and Alex Schiffer, I think it was, uh, at The Athletic, wrote kind of like a long sort of TikTok of the whole Atkinson situation in Brooklyn, and they mentioned that as well as <laughs> as a source of some tension. And, and it makes sense, right? You think, to me... Like, it makes sense. Sorry, okay, yeah. Well, I just feel like the surprising thing about this was the timing. And honestly, I was surprised by the move itself because, you know, I, I've had like a, a couple personal interactions with Kenny Atkinson. Yeah, he's great. Like he, and we ought to be careful with this stuff because we as media, like, we obviously formulate opinions based on our personal interactions. And that doesn't yeah. necessarily tell you anything no. about who those people actually are. But we can't say Kenny Atkinson, a delight. To, yeah, to work with from uh, a media perspective. Absolutely one of the nicest and most accommodating people in the league that I've ever dealt with um, from a media perspective. That doesn't say anything about what his relationship was like with, with his players or you know who he is behind the scenes, but I think you've heard a lot of people speak to the character of Kenny Atkinson. And so I think it was surprising because like what was he supposed to do with this team? Like They've been so snakebit, obviously no Durant for the entire season. Irving shuts it down after playing only 20 games, and it was a whole on-again, off-again thing with him. Karis LeVert missed a ton of time. Like, he has them playing, I think, about as well as they could be expected to play. Like, I know it's a low bar in the Eastern Conference, but they're in a playoff spot. They're almost certainly going to make the playoffs. And the playoffs are, like, five weeks away. So the timing, I think, made it feel like a real shock. But if you kind of go back and look at all the red flags that we saw along the way... It really shouldn't be that surprising. And I think, you know, the first sign of trouble was probably like Jackie McMullen writes that story in the preseason about that mini camp that they had when Kyrie Irving essentially refused to participate in the biometric data gathering program that they were running during that mini camp. And I think it was just that was an indication that there was maybe going to be some tension between the like what Kenny Atkinson is running here is sort of a capital P program. They were building this thing from the ground up, essentially. Literally rubble. So little to build with and so little hope. Sean Marks inherited. Around. He inherited quite possibly the worst situation in pro sports history. Right. And Kenny Atkinson comes in and he's like, even in his first couple seasons, like the team was not going to be good. He understood that, but he gave them an identity they were true to their principles and the way that they played. And he gave them, I think, a sense of kind of collective purpose. And he helped foster the growth of some guys who, you know, made their turnaround possible. And Spencer Dinwiddie, D'Angelo Russell, Levert, Joe Harris. 
these kind of scrap heap guys or reclamation projects that really blossomed under Atkinson's guidance. And I think you said it like it's it's a totally different thing when you're bringing in these two guys who have already accrued all this individual success accolades. They've won championships. And I think it makes sense that they wouldn't necessarily be jazzed about going along with this program that was not designed for players like them. And so I don't put the blame necessarily on anybody here. I don't think it's anybody's fault. And I don't necessarily think it's going to be a bad thing either for the franchise, as much as it seems like a move that a dysfunctional team would make. Um, I just think, you know, the Nets fundamentally changed who they were in the offseason. And so I think maybe... Looking back at all of that, this is something that feels more inevitable in hindsight than it did at the time. Yeah. Well, I think the irony is that the culture that... And I don't want to take credit away from Sean Marks either, because like I said, that guy inherited, you know, essentially a rookie GM inherited the worst situation in NBA history when you talk about, like, the lack of assets, draft picks, how bad they were and everything. And in half a decade, turned them into what they are now, which is next year, a hopeful contender. But Kenny Atkinson also deserves a lot of that credit. You know, you mentioned the, the work he's done with young, young players get better under Kenny Atkinson. The Nets, who were absolutely directionless, ended up with one of the, the league's strongest identities and most predictable identities. And not, I don't mean that in a bad way, like predictable, like they weren't adapting. I just mean predictable, like you knew. I remember writing even, I think it was like two, three years ago, when they were still bad in Atkinson's first or second season, that the Nets were playing very, very smart high IQ basketball just without the talent to execute it at a level where they're going to like they would win yeah and for a bad team they were really I think fun to watch they were um and and they played with a sense of sort of connectivity um but yeah I mean he and, and when when we talked about uh like David Fisdale who got fired earlier this season and you know we said on the one hand like he didn't really have much of a hope like what was he supposed to do with this roster but on the other hand he didn't really put any of his fingerprints on this team he didn't have them playing with purpose like he didn't have any type of identity that he wanted to mold this team in the fashion of and I think the like Kenny Atkinson is a perfect counterpoint to that where he took a team that on paper should shouldn't have had any business playing with the kind of verve that they played with and it wasn't necessarily reflected in the standings but ultimately I think the process bore itself out where they were able to get to the playoffs last year yeah and what I was saying is the irony is that he, Kenny Atkinson helped build the culture that led to them being able to acquire two superstars in free agency. Now, I'm not saying they looked at the Nets and said, well, I like what Kenny Atkinson done. We're going to go there. You but Kevin Durant did say that at his introductory <laughs> press but, conference. But what I'm saying is like the, the culture in general that the Nets had built got them to a point where, yeah, and obviously being in the league's biggest or second biggest media market matters too but hey the Knicks were there with with the same money and and why didn't they go to the Knicks because Kevin Durant said hey he said the Knicks aren't cool anymore their brand isn't but what he I think we can take away from that what he meant is that like based on the way they operate you know like it's there's nothing cool about being a Nick because they stink and everything about them stinks the Nets presented an opportunity for stars to play in New York but in a good culture like with um strong leadership and everything and the irony is that Kenny Atkinson helped build that, and now it's assumingly that very culture which these stars don't fit in. And I get what you're saying. Yeah, there's no blame either way. Like, people are who they are. You can't blame someone for being who they are. Having said that, I think it's fair to question. Like, we know, we know what Kenny Atkinson is as a coach for the most part, right? We just discussed all that. 
we don't know what Kevin Durant's going to look like coming off an, an Achilles tear. And that's obviously no fault of his own. Mm-hmm. We all hope he's somewhat, you know, close to the great scorer he was before that, one of the greatest of all time. But that's hard to peg. Kyrie Irving played 20 games this season and is one of the most, like, polarizing might be putting it lightly, okay? One of the most polarizing talents in the league. We still don't even know how much better Kyrie Irving makes a team. Well, on his own, I think we saw, like, he couldn't do a whole lot to move the needle for the Nets when right. he was playing. And as, as a number two, I think he is a ceiling raiser, without sure. a doubt. But I, I just think that, obviously, you always take the player. You take the talent, yeah. especially in the NBA, over a coach. And I'm not insinuating the Nets should have decided anything else. They obviously should have got Kevin Durant and Kyrie Ring when they had the chance. Yes. But I would also argue that at this stage, and because of how unique these circumstances are with the injuries and Kyrie just being Kyrie, I almost feel like Kenny Atkinson as a coach next season is a much more known quantity from a positive value perspective Mm -hmm. than the on-court contributions of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Um... I, I don't know that I would go that far. I think even Durant, like, coming off of the Achilles, like, he's still going to be seven feet tall and one of the best shooters in the league. Like, I, there's still such a high floor on that player. Like, e- even with the uncertainty of the injury, I don't think that I would say that Atkinson is a more known quantity than, than KD is going to be. And I think this should go without saying, but, like, the Nets would do this again ten times out Obviously, of ten. And, yeah. Like, any team would. And I think what this does reveal, though, is... Like, there was all that talk about how Durant didn't meet with the Nets. The Nets didn't. The Nets found out that he was signing there through his own Instagram post. They didn't know. They didn't, you know, have sit-down chats with him about what it was going to look like. And this feels like a consequence of that, right? Where if you came for a free agent meeting and talked to Sean Marks and Kenny Atkinson about what it was going to look like with you and Kyrie Irving in the fold, maybe the sides get a better sense of themselves and maybe they're better prepared for how the partnership is going to look and how it's going to work, as opposed to you just deciding that you're going to sign with this team because they're cooler than the Knicks and they have a nice practice facility. And then you come in and suddenly it's not what you expected and it causes a rift. And I'm not saying, like, this isn't necessarily going to set the team back. I mean, we have to wait and see who they hire. And like you said, whether Irving can stay healthy and what Durant looks like when he comes back. And this all has the potential to be a big disappointment yeah. for Brooklyn. And whether for Kyrie sure. blows up the locker room or not. I just think like that's maybe why you want to actually like have some sort of communication with the team you're going to sign with and feel them out and get a sense of like whether it's going to be a good fit. And I think this has all sort of changed in the last few years where it's more like the players decide where they want to play and the organization reorients itself they around, accommodate. around what the players are and what they want. We're seeing that happen here. But I just think, you know, a lot of this probably could have been avoided if they'd made an attempt to get on the same page from the start and that doesn't seem to have happened. And I mean, we we kind of pointed at the DeAndre Jordan thing as maybe a red flag when it happened as even like, as we praised the moves. Yeah. And, you know, like they gave him a, what a 4-year, 40 million dollar contract that was well above market value in my opinion. And we speculated that they were probably going to have to start him on account of the money they gave him and on account of him being close friends with Durant and Irving and them seeming like they were basically a package deal. Whereas the guy he's competing for a spot for is far younger, I think like 10 years younger, um, had been under Atkinson's tutelage for the two years prior, 
had far more upside, and frankly, even in the present, is probably a better player. And hundred percent, Jared Allen is better <laughs> than DeAndre Jordan right now. Yeah, and he's ten years younger. So I don't know what like how is this going to look going forward? Like, is DeAndre going to start for the rest of the season? Is he going to start next season? Like, I think he starts next season. And and so this is where you get into some real complications, I think. And I, I I'm very curious about what it looks like going forward. Like, I think the Nets are going to be one of the most fascinating and most under the gun teams in the league next season. And I think for whichever coach decides to take that job, um, you know, not that it's like any coach, I think would jump at the chance to coach a talent like Kevin Durant, but like, man, that is going to be a ton of pressure. Yeah. It's a real shame that getting Kevin Durant ended up being a package that also comes with Kyrie Irving and DeAndre Jordan. Right. (laughs) But again, like that's, uh, you know, if you had to do it to get Kevin Durant, you do it to get Kevin Durant because he's Kevin freaking Durant. Like you just, you do what you have to do to get him in the door and you figure the rest out later. Yeah. And then you just hope like hell that he is, you know, even, even 80% of what he was at his best is still one of the best players in the league. Yeah. Like 80% 80 of, of Kevin Durant is probably a top 10 player. Right. The The concern obviously is that a seven footer on the wrong side of 30 with a blown out Achilles Mm -hmm. But his skills and his profile are like but, such. They're but I'm not just resistant talking, to decline in a lot of ways. But I'm not just talking defensively. Maybe not. No, no. But I'm not just talking about what he can do when he's on the floor. I'm talking about like how often he'll be on the floor. Like, but this isn't like it's not like an injury that has a high risk of recurrence. No, right? but so. I just mean in general. Like you miss more than a year with an Achilles as a seven footer. Like yeah, you'll be able to shoot, but I don't know. Like what? Like physically, will he ever be the same again? I don't know. Like will. Um, I think history would tell us absolutely not. Uh, what guy has suffered an Achilles tear at that point of their career and come back and been physically the same? I, I, I mean, I'd have to go back right. and look, but I, I think that it's basically a zero. And that's what I'm saying. Like, when you start getting into that point where a guy in his 30s, you know, with as many miles as Durant now has in his body because he's been around a while and has had deep playoff runs every year, when physically that starts changing and, and for the worse and after a catastrophic injury like that, like does it start affecting other parts of your body, you know, like, and um, then are like, there, are you are, compensating for that? Yeah. And then are there little nagging things where it's like, okay, maybe you're getting 63 games out of them instead of 71, you know, and it just kind of keeps going down. Right. So like, I'm, I'm not doubting the fact that when he's on the court, yeah, Kevin is going to be able to shoot over anyone he wants to and put up numbers and contribute to winning. And I hope that, you know, he just continues to do that at an exceptional level. I just don't... We obviously can't count on him just coming in and playing, say, 80% of what he was for, like, 75 games. Like, I don't think that's realistic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that may well be. Uh, And again, there's just going to be so many questions hovering around this team going into next year. And we don't have the answers right now, and we might not have them for a while yet. But um, I guess the first question to answer is who is going to be the coach of this team next season? And I believe, I think this was from Vincent Goodwill at Yahoo, who's done some really good reporting in the past, like the, the Houston Rockets thing with Chris Paul and James Harden. He kind of broke that open. So I would trust him on this, but uh, he reported that Irving's choice was Ty Lu, who obviously coached that championship team in Cleveland. I guess we're going to find out how much sway Kyrie has within that organization. And if... I mean, if Ty Lue is the coach next year, then we will know essentially who is in the driver's seat here. Yeah. I, I think it's really interesting. Like, the dynamic between Irving, Durant, and the Nets, like, Durant is obviously the player who has more pull, 
right? Like, he is a far better player, and he's the guy where it's like, if he says, this is what I want, you do whatever you have to to accommodate him. Whereas Kyrie is like, yeah, on his best days, he's like a top 15 player. And his best days are not worth his worst days off the court. I don't know if I would go that far. I mean, yeah, it's a, he's a complicated person and a complicated player, without a doubt. But... Like, this whole time, it seems like he has been, like, the more vocal presence and the one who is maybe imprinting his personality and his whims on the team more so than Durant is. And again, I'm not, like, I don't have any insider info here, but, like, the reporting around the time that they signed was Durant was keen on going to the Knicks and Irving talked him into signing with Brooklyn instead and Durant went along with it. It seems like, you know, the schism that happened here was more so between Kyrie and Atkinson than it was between Durant and Atkinson, which makes sense because Durant wasn't even playing. And, the, you know, that same Vincent Goodwill report set, stated that Irving soured on Atkinson early. And I feel like maybe that went both ways. Like, you remember that quote? It was four games into the season when Atkinson was asked about his offense. They were throwing like 50 fewer passes a game than the season prior. And his quote was, well, we're not really running anything. And you can take that as a subtweet. Or not, but I think it, it's pretty clear what he was talking about and who he was talking about. So. And also, that was when, if you remember early in the season, Kyrie was playing absolutely lights out, like individually, but the Nets weren't winning. Yeah, so that's so you have Irving now essentially preferring Ty Lue to be the coach, and who knows what Durant's preference is, and is he going to go along with that? Does he have his own idea of who he wants to come in? I, I just think it's interesting that Irving seems to be like the domineering personality here, even though Durant should be the one who has more sway. One thing I will say with Ty Lue is, you know, obviously the optics of it will now not be great since the report has come out that that's Kyrie's preferred choice. I also don't think we should take anything away from the fact that Ty Lue might have just been one of the better candidates for the job anyway because he is a recent championship head coach. And I know when you have LeBron James leading you to the title, you'll probably never get the credit you deserve as a head coach. And I'm not saying Ty Lue is some, you know, world beater of head coach, but I think he obviously did a very good job in Cleveland. He's super well-respected around the league. He's obviously coached in a lot of big games with Doc Rivers, and he's going to be doing that again this spring. Mm -hmm. And Ty Lue in and of himself is a very dominating personality. Ty Lue is not the kind of guy that's going to come in and take crap from Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, whether he's a preferred choice or not. And I think that's an interesting component of it right like Ty Lue has dealt with LeBron James and by all accounts used to hold LeBron James accountable more than maybe any head coach he had ever had before mm -hmm. so I think that would be a very interesting dynamic because you know if if Kevin Durant for example thinks that he's going to have his way with a guy like Ty Lue like it's not happening yeah and we don't know necessarily that that's what Durant wants and we don't know exactly why those two guys felt like Atkinson wasn't the best fit. I mean, we're speculating about the reasons that, that might be the case, but we don't really know. So Ty Lue could be a good fit there. And I'm interested to see also how long the Nets wait to make this decision. Like they could wait until like the playoffs are over. And I don't know, maybe Mike D'Antoni is out of a job. A lot of balls in the air for them, obviously. Yeah, I'd imagine this is one of those situations where you start to hear and see throughout the playoffs, you know, like... Um assistant coaches who are yeah and even but even re being requested for interviews exactly you know like Ty Lue will have an interview uh you'll hear like the net staff travel to LA before game four of the conference yeah. finals to meet with Ty Lue like I think this is what that's gonna be yeah all right we should probably just talk quickly about about the coronavirus because where we're at with this now is 
the first step that's been taken is locker room access for media has been shuttered for the time being. That does affect us and how mm-hmm. we can do our jobs. Um, not that you know anybody's going to have sympathy, but that's kind of a big first step. And I mean, for me, the thing that really set off alarm bells was Indian Wells getting canceled. And I don't know how many of our listeners are tennis people, but that's a massive massive tennis tournament like Like outside of the four grand slams that's the biggest tennis tournament in the world and for that event to be outright canceled just makes me think that it's gonna continue to happen in other sporting events and santa clara county in california which is you know encompasses san jose they issued a three-week ban for all events that are going to attract a thousand or more people which includes uh sharks games And obviously, you know, that's near the Bay Area. Like, so, you know, we'll see, I guess, whether that's going to affect the Warriors at all. But there's a conference call scheduled between the league and 30 teams tomorrow night, I believe, to discuss contingencies in the event that this thing sort of continues to spiral. I I don't have any answers, obviously. I don't think, you know, we're not epidemiologists. Like, we don't know exactly where this is all going. But just given the sort of warning signs and how quickly all this has risen to like a fever pitch, it seems possible that we're going to see games played without fans in attendance. Uh, That's another thing the league told teams to be prepared for the possibility of. And that going along with that might be a pretty significant revenue hit. And if you think about like the revenue hit that the league has already taken given the China fiasco, like the salary cap might see a fairly decent dip next season as opposed to the increase that a lot of people expected coming into the year. Yeah, the one counter to that would be that what a lot of people don't realize is that gate revenue, like tickets, make up actually a small portion of NBA revenue. Like so much of it is more like TV, but concessions. But what I was going to say is the playoffs are a different animal. Like Mm -hmm. you start hearing some of the figures of what teams make off playoff revenue, playoff gates, why, you know, certain owners are cool chasing the 8C just to get two home playoff games. Like, if if teams have to play playoff games in empty arenas, now we're really talking about some lost revenue and, and the cap yeah. potentially being affected. How freaking and, weird would that be also? Oh, it would be bizarre. <laughs> like, It'd be like the Twilight Zone. And on that note, like, LeBron came out and, I don't know, it was probably maybe a little tongue-in-cheek, but when he was saying, like, he wouldn't even play, if they did it, like, first of all, he would have to play. If the game was still being played, he couldn't just choose not to. Like, yeah. it's violation of his contract but i think players just and not just players media like everyone's going to be a little smarter when they talk about this mm-hmm. if you got to play in an empty arena it's for the like health and safety concerns of a lot of people and i think um you know whatever the case may be whether it's playing in an empty arena or something else like just like suck it up and do it now on that no you mentioned the media stuff um, and I don't at all, you know, want to come off like I'm complaining because I'm all for like the league and health officials and everyone like doing whatever they need to do and we need to do to contain this thing, protect people as much as possible. You know, I, I know one of the arguments a lot of people make is like, well, if you're like a healthy person, it's fine. And yeah, it is fine. But the issue and the fear is that you, a healthy young person, acquires the virus and then you now put elderly people uh, at risk and young people at risk, you know, babies like with 
um, compromised immune systems. It's not all about you, right? Right. Now, having said that, the thing that irked me a bit about the the media thing, like we're not really supposed to talk. Like we should just accept it. I get it. But my issue with the media thing was it's just very strange to me that the amount of people, like other human beings, that players and pro athletes, but especially NBA players, because of the nature of basketball encounter within six to eight feet of them on a game day it's a high number and so you know saying in the media you know we can't get in the locker room we're going to do these like mixed zone availabilities and they they're going to try to make it so that we can't get within six to eight feet of the players again i understand protecting everybody uh and trying to contain this thing it's just strange to me that like if you're if you're at a point where you don't want non-essential team employees getting within six to eight feet of players then we probably are at a point where maybe we should be playing in empty arenas. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? This just seems like a weirdly media-centric half measure. So either go the whole way to protect people, or it's not necessary. But it's going to be one or the other. I just find it very strange that they don't want media getting within six to eight feet of the players, but there's courtside seats that they're selling for $1,000 that are 100% within six to eight feet of players. There's a ton of people. There's arena staff. You know, that are going to be security personnel that are all going to be close to the players that are all going to be in contact with other human beings on the outside world. Like mm-hmm. everyone's at risk here. And and to think that, you know, just uh, changing the way media availabilities work will somehow either protect the players more or protect everyone, I think, is a little strange. Well, I don't think that they're taking this measure as like a Band-Aid solution that they feel like is actually going to protect the players and they don't need to take any further measures. And I think... You know, we're seeing that with, with this conference call. That, I mean, we'll see what comes out of it. But based on reporting from Adrian Wojnarowski, they are preparing teams for the possibility of playing in empty arenas. And I don't know. I mean, we, we, there hasn't been any talk of, like, canceling games or postponing games or anything like that yet. But I feel like that's probably got to be on the table at some point as well. I mean, like, if, uh, you know, knock on wood, like, a, a player comes into contact with somebody who is later diagnosed with the virus or contracts it themselves, like has to go into quarantine. What happens then? Two you week know? quarantine. That's an, that's a playoff series. Like imagine that. Imagine it uh, doesn't even have to be a superstar, an impactful mm-hmm. player on a contender well, has to be quarantined but this for, is the, thing, for like, the duration of a playoff. Series. It wouldn't just be that one player though, because as soon as, one player, you know, whether it was that they showed symptoms or had recently come into contact with somebody who had symptoms, then suddenly everybody around them is at risk, right? And I don't know how they would deal with that, but I think that's why they're doing their level best right now to try and get out ahead of it and have contingencies in place in the event that that does happen. Yeah, it's it's a very strange th- like situation, right? Where obviously the the world at large is facing this issue and it's obviously not just a sports issue. And even on our end, yeah, like we're affected as media, but that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. No. We're both, we're both well aware of that. I think it's um, more just like a, an illustration of how it really is affecting basically yeah. every industry. Yes. Um, um, so a lot of uncertainty right now surrounding the NBA and a, a lot of other industries as well. Yeah. And everyone just use common sense, but that's with your own hygiene when it comes to this stuff and washing your hands and, you know, avoiding people and all that, but also use common sense in um, uh, how understanding you are of, you know, people doing what they need to do to try to contain this thing. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? 
Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. All right, let's talk about the Lakers. Lakers had a hell of a weekend. They played the two best teams in the league outside of themselves in Milwaukee and the LA Clippers. And probably their two biggest challengers for the NBA title this season. They won both of those games. One of them was at home. I mean, they were both at home. <laughs> they were home against the Bucks and technically on the road against the Clippers. But I think can, can that I, was maybe a good indication of like if, if, or maybe we can just say when those two teams play in a playoff series. Quick side note. Can I just throw one thing in? <laughs> sure. Because I've always found it fascinating. So I don't know if people know this, but like at Staples Center, when the Lakers and Clippers play each other, even when, so like when the Lakers are the road team, they still get to use, obviously, the Lakers locker room. So in that sense, they still have the home field. I think it would be cool. And like, I don't know if either team could actually control this as the home team, like how much control they exert over the arena. But I think it would be really funny if like, when the, if the Lakers are the road team at Staples Center, like they should not be granted entry into the Lakers home locker room. Or when the Clippers are there, like, I don't know. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? They though? need to have, like, a really shitty road locker room, just a third locker room. But they, they do. Can... They do. They have a third because that's where the visiting teams that are oh, not, right? So, yeah, you're saying whichever team is the road team should have to, be to in the use that room. room. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying they should have to go through, other than getting on a plane and going somewhere else, yeah. they should have to deal with, like, the road. What are, like, some other things that road teams have to deal with that they could kind of artificially force a team that plays in that building to have to deal with as the road team i don't know that's a good question they're like they're not allowed to use any of the uh, the usual arena catering or anything like that <laughs> like the food has to be all brought from outside and like and like they should have to draw they should have to drive from lax to the arena when they play as a road they they pump in crowd noise like they pump in booze from the crowd yeah. anytime like a call goes against the team that's ostensibly the home team. I no. mean this this only applies to the Clippers though, right? Because like when it yeah. is a Lakers home game, it's just gonna yeah. be a Lakers but home game. But I just I just find that part fascinating that they still get to use the home locker room, which like it's a little thing, but it does make it feel like home. I mean yeah. it's their home arena, you can't change that. But I I feel like the locker room situation, whoever is the road team in an all LA game should have to use the visiting locker room at Staples Center. So this is interesting because Steve Ballmer, I believe, was granted permission to buy the forum. Is that right? I don't, yeah, the, the forum or the land around the forum. Is it the actual forum? I think it is the actual forum, Okay, which is in Inglewood, which right. is like he wants to build a new arena there, essentially. Yeah. I'm not saying this is the very reason why, but I think you're seeing like sharing an arena with the biggest ticket in town, essentially, is always kind of going to be a disadvantage for the Clippers, um, not just in terms of their brand, but like in practical terms. If these teams find themselves in a playoff series together, the Clippers are essentially going to be playing, you know, however many five, six, seven road games. Yeah. So this is fairly significant. And like, I don't know if, I think it's like 2024 is when 
yeah. there's the hope of them actually having a new arena ready to go. So by that time, who knows? I mean, LeBron James, he might still be the best player in the world. I'm yeah, not he'll be playing with Bronny somewhere. I'm not taking anything off the table where LeBron is concerned, but this rivalry might look a whole lot different by then. But um, for the, anyone listening to you that maybe like a younger viewer just like isn't aware, the, the big deal with the Clippers, if they were to build an arena in Inglewood and make Inglewood theirs, is that historically Inglewood is Lakers. Ten. Like yeah. that's, the well, LA, that's where they used to play. The LA Forum is where so many legendary Lakers moments happen. So for the Clippers to go in there and try to make it theirs, I think. Right. Well, I think the whole point is the Clippers are trying to build something, right? Like they're trying to build their own brand and carve out whatever chunk of LA they can. And, and they're not going to be able to do that, I don't think, as long as they are ever. playing in the same building. And maybe not ever, but even with the Lob City Clippers, it helped, I think, that the Lakers were not a good team during the Lob City years. But they started to get, I think, some measure of traction. And if like the Clippers win the championship this year, then for the younger generation coming up, as much as there is this like rich history of Lakerdom in L.A., you start to build something and start to build, I think, some cachet and credibility and carve out some kind of market share in L.A. and maybe start to push some fans away from the Lakers. And this is all part of that process, I think. And obviously, Steve Ballmer, like, that's his goal. Like, that's what he's trying to do here. And that's, um, I think, you know, a big part of what buying the forum and hopefully turning it into a new Clippers arena is all about. I think any chance the Clippers had of, like, converting young fans into being Clippers fans for life because they were good and like contenders while the Lakers sucked basically went out the window when LeBron joined the Lakers you know like they had the Clippers had those years where they could have like built a fan and it's not necessarily any fault of their own like you can't make a fan choose one or the other but any any of those young kids in LA that might have been like yeah like I like the Clippers more because they were good when I was a kid and not the Lakers and then like the moment LeBron James arrives and I get that Kawhi and Paul George are hometown guys I don't think it matters LeBron James is such a force that I think once he went there and now has them as contenders again, mm-hmm. I just... Well, what if the Clippers just come out and, like, dominate the Lakers in a playoff I, I series? Still, I don't know if it would matter, man. Like, I don't... Yeah. I, I'm also saying... I know this is, like, not at all what we were going to talk about the Lakers. I, to this day, remain confused as to what makes someone a Clippers fan. Like, in any other intra-city sports rivalry, there's a... Re- like... Like north side, south side of Chicago. Exactly. Uh, the Mets play in Queens and historically like represent you know parts of the city. The Islanders and the Rangers. The Islanders were on Long Island, right? Mm-hmm. Now they play in Brooklyn. Um, the Giants and Jets are different because they're both New York teams and both play in New Jersey. But I, I mean, maybe that's one. Well, that's a big problem with them playing in the same arena. There's yeah. no regional but, area that they can lay claim right, to. Right, but that's what I'm saying. So like, if you're growing up in LA as a huge NBA fan, like, like I don't understand like what makes someone be a Clippers fan as opposed to a Lakers fan. Like, like there's no regional difference. There, there's literally nothing. It's just like, oh, these two teams that play in the same city. One's historic, one's not. Like, I, well, I think it's like you have an affinity for the little brother and you don't like the big bad Lakers because of what they represent and so you want to vote for the underdog. I mean, I don't know. We'll have to ask Billy Crystal one of these. Yeah, guys. let's get Billy Crystal on the pod. Um, all right, so let's let's pivot back to what we were going to talk about initially, which is uh, the, the Lakers' big victories this weekend and maybe what they foretell about uh, about their matchups with both of those teams. They, they beat the Bucks on the back of a really dominant LeBron James performance. They're, I don't know if they're the first team to do it this season, but they're really the first team that I have seen actually like beat the Bucks up inside. And I don't know how replicable that is, but I think 
this might be the only team that could beat the Bucks while shooting six of 31 from yeah. three-point range. Um, and a lot of that was just LeBron, like, getting downhill. He was really attacking Giannis one-on-one and going right at him. Um, I think another thing we saw is, like, a nice wrinkle where uh, they're running pick and rolls with JaVale McGee, and JaVale McGee is, instead of kind of, like, rolling to the basket looking for the ball, he's setting those Gortat screens where he's essentially just sort of sliding in and screening out his own guy so that LeBron can get all the way to the rim. And I think that's a, a very nice counter to the drop coverage um, and one maybe we'll start to see more of. There are other teams in the league that are good at that, like Daniel Tice on the Celtics is really good at that. Uh, Steven Adams is really good at it. And obviously, you know, Gortat being the godfather <laughs> of of that screen where you're screening your own man. And I don't... Like, the Bucks have gotten really good and a lot more aggressive this season of sending help crashing in from the wings. So I'm sure they have counters to that. And obviously, you know, if Lopez is ready for that, then he'll be a little bit better at navigating it. But um, I just thought that was a really, really impressive performance from from LeBron and from the Lakers as a whole. Yeah, no. So I uh, Sunday night I did on the score app, I posted five takeaways from this, like the Lakers weekend. And one of them was that the Lakers don't need shooting to beat the Bucks, and that they might be the only I, team. I don't that... agree with that. Though. Okay. Don't they <laughs> in that game? They didn't. Can they shoot 19% from three and beat them in a seven-game series? No. Can they withstand poor shooting against Milwaukee, perhaps better than any other team in the league? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think this game was the blueprint. Look, we've spoken at length about the ways to which Milwaukee protects the rim and how capable they are of protecting the rim and protecting the paint and forcing teams to beat them with pull-up jumpers and threes. The Lakers have LeBron James and Anthony freaking Davis, which means... They can bang with anyone, and they can get almost anything inside. And you saw that in this game. They scored 50 points in the paint. And I know I don't usually like talk about just like raw numbers in the game, but that's a pretty absurd number against the Bucks of all teams. And I think, again, can they do it for seven games? No, but can can it become a habit where the Lakers bully the Bucks inside in a way that probably no other team in the league can? Absolutely. Like, they're good enough to do that. And so... If they're able to do that and LeBron's getting to the rim and AD's banging inside and it, the Bucks' rim protection is just not the defensive weapon it usually is, yeah, you're still going to need to knock down your open shots because not everyone is LeBron James and Anthony Davis. But I just don't think... like we Last week, we literally talked about all the different things you need if you are to beat the Bucks, And one of the things we said, well, you need to get hot from three. Like, it just has to happen because they're giving you that and they're taking the rim away. Against the Lakers, they just can't do that as much. They can't take the pain away to the same degree. And so I don't, I don't think there's a team in the league that's better equipped to play with the Bucs without needing the outside shooting like the Lakers. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think they also showed that they're pretty well equipped to defend the Bucs. Mm -hmm. The, the Bucks had a miserable shooting night in that game as well. So, you know, these, all, these things can always go the other way. And, like, they did play earlier this season, and the Lakers got, like, seven baskets in the restricted area and the Bucks shot better from three and they won pretty comfortably. So I think we got to try not to overreact 100%. to these small sample sizes. And maybe we can go there next because this recency bias is really killing me. I know the Lakers deserve and like we're giving them their just due right now. Like they deserve a ton of credit for the weekend that they had. And LeBron James deserves a ton of credit for the incredible season that he's had. But the rapidity with which this MVP narrative shifted and this idea that the Lakers should now be considered like front runners to win the championship after this one great weekend, even though they lost two games to the Clippers previously and lost to the Bucks previously, I just think 
it's gone a little bit overboard. And like to me, Giannis is still the runaway favorite to win MVP. The Bucks to me are still the best team in the league, and still. And I never consider them overwhelming championship favorites, but they are still championship favorites to me and should still be considered the best team in the league. So, I don't know. Where are you at with all this? Do you feel like LeBron has, like, legitimately really closed the gap in the MVP race and that the Lakers should be favorites to win, like, after what you saw this weekend? Well, I picked the Lakers to win at the beginning, and I've remained true to that all year. Fair enough. I still think the Lakers will win the championship, but not just because of what happened this weekend. In terms of LeBron, we both said last week that as great and as admirable of a season as he's having, Giannis would get our MVP vote. Mm -hmm. Giannis would still get my MVP vote. However... I think you have to acknowledge, and yeah, the weekend did change things a little bit. I think you have to acknowledge that the window is more open today than it was when we sat down to record that podcast. Like I, And I don't think that's necessarily just like, well, I saw this in this one weekend with LeBron. Like everything I thought last week no longer exists. No, it's also not that small of a sample size. The Lakers are 49 and 13. You know, like we're not talking about a team that's kind of been like, treading water all season and now for a couple weeks they looked good and they had this one good weekend like they're one game in the loss column behind the bucks in the overall standings they're two and a half behind them overall like this is a huge sample size of the lakers being excellent Mm -hmm. and lebron james having this incredible season and yeah Giannis was doing it even better but there's also still a quarter of the season to go and Giannis has his knee injury now. Which Giannis is- has a knee injury. And, you know, we were talking off uh, off air about whether, well, maybe if, you know, if they go like one and five without him or something, maybe that just boosts his MVP candidacy, right? But consider LeBron James just continues to do what he's doing right now. And the Lakers catch and pass the Bucks for the top seed overall. Like, you, you don't think that with a quarter of the season still remaining, LeBron James could earn MVP. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to make a final judgment call on it until the season is over. But I, that's, I'm just, that, that's what I'm saying, because I yeah. get what you're saying, that people shouldn't overreact to small sample size, and there have been way too many people, one network in particular, that <laughs> has all of a sudden shifted to like, well, how, how can LeBron not be? It's like, no, Giannis would still get my vote. Right. But on the other side, I'm just as frustrated with people that seem to be giving LeBron James no chance to actually earn this award and looking at it as like, well, if he wins it, it's because of the narrative and recency bias. Mm -hmm. It's like, there's still a quarter of the season remaining. The guy's playing out of his mind for a team that's now only one back in the loss column of a team that was on pace for 71 wins up until last week. Mm -hmm. And he just did have a weekend where he outplayed Giannis Antetokounmpo and Kawhi Leonard. I think you have to take all that into account and at least acknowledge He's got a better chance today than he did last week, and the window is now open. Okay. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a quarter of the season left. You're absolutely right, and who knows what happens with this Giannis knee injury. It already seems like the Bucks are taking their foot off the gas a little bit. They sat a healthy Brooke Lopez, Chris Middleton, and I believe Eric Bledsoe as well against the Nuggets last night. So, you know, they've clearly eased up a bit. Uh, I'm sure they're going to be cautious with Giannis and who knows how much he plays down the stretch. Like their priority obviously is just going to be to have him healthy for the playoffs. So maybe that opens the door. And I will say about LeBron, um, this is the best defense that I've seen him play in years. And the fact that he spent large chunks of that Bucks game guarding Giannis, large chunks of that Clippers game guarding Kawhi, rising to that challenge and, and really giving it his all at that end of the floor is is super impressive and you know absolutely a point in his favor it's just like going to the deck to out hustle Montrez Harrell 
in a March game. Yeah, and I, I give him all the credit in the world for that. Like, he has, you know, we've talked about how in the past he hasn't taken the regular season all that seriously. He's sort of load managed in games, hasn't really given it his all at the defensive end of the floor, has always had his eye on the big picture. And this regular season, it's been kind of different. I think given the sour taste that was probably left in his mouth after last year, he has wanted to attack this regular season from the jump. And he's come out and brought it basically every single night at both ends of the floor. I just think like some of the criteria that people are using to like, you know, preemptively award him the MVP, like, oh, he's 35 and it's a 17th season and nobody's ever done this before. And by the way, he had to deal with this complicated China situation. One, one person, one person said that. Yeah. And we won't name names, but like, that's just, and also to say that it, you know, it means something extra for his candidacy that he's doing it in the, the shadow of Kobe Bryant's death. Please don't do that. Like, do not use somebody's death to contribute to somebody else's, like, MVP case. I think that's just really gross, and that makes me super uncomfortable. Like, it's just, I get it. Like, yes, he's faced adversity this season. Yes, he's 35. He's in his 17th season. Maybe you can say that that makes what he is doing all the more impressive, but those are not criteria for the MVP. The MVP is just the most valuable player this season. And it still hasn't been him. And it might be by the end of the season, but right now it's not. It's closer, though. <laughs> okay. It's closer. Sure. sure. Than it was. Um, um, what, one thing, yeah, you mentioned like how they're also maybe well-built defensively to guard the Bucks. I thought that was interesting as well. And when you start to think about it, it does make sense. Like LeBron on Giannis played a factor into that game. I think Giannis was two of eight for seven points when guarded by LeBron, and that was over the course of, I think, 25 plays or something like that. Mm-hmm. Kawhi had a, a, a good game numbers-wise, like scoring, but if you actually look at his overall impact on the game, it wasn't quite what it was, and LeBron guarded him for a large stretch of that game, including like from the opening possession, which I thought was interesting because there was a lot of people foolishly claiming that that was a matchup LeBron sometimes shied away from. The, LeBron's not shying away from any matchup, man. He's LeBron James, and, and I thought it was very... Interesting that from the opening possession of that game, LeBron was guarding Kawhi Leonard. But yeah, LeBron on Giannis, I think, can at least trouble him. Um, Anthony Davis is kind of like the rare player who can, um, you know, guard bigs inside, but also hang with a guy like Giannis on the perimeter if he has to. Between Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee, you know, that obviously those guys aren't going to be their closing lineup guys, but I also think... They well, provide great help at the rim to, yeah. to like between LeBron, Anthony Davis, and one of those two bigs, they can at least slow Giannis's rampage to the rim. But then with LeBron and Avery Bradley and Danny Green, they can also uh, do some work on the Bucks perimeter player. So I do think they are built really well, as well as you can be, say, to defend the Bucks. And the Bucks matchup gives them cover to play big, which is what mm-hmm. they prefer to do. And, you know, if they want to stay big, if they want to close games that way, they absolutely can because the Bucks like to play big as well. And, like, defensively, they play sort of similarly stylistically. Like, the Lakers also don't like to switch a whole bunch. They like to drop their bigs back. Um, you know, they use their on-ball defenders essentially to just chase guys over top of screens, try and run them off the three-point line and force them into that mid-range area. Bradley's done a good job of that this season. Danny Green, KCP, like, it's sort of a similar infrastructure defensively. And I do think, like, if they're playing big and they have a guy like Dwight Howard or JaVale McGee back there protecting the rim, and at the point of attack, it's LeBron or it's AD checking Giannis, and they have guys who can recover out to shooters, 
it, it's sort of similar to that Bucks formula, and I think it would be a really interesting matchup. But I'm still not convinced that the Lakers are going to get there uh, because I, I still think, you know, despite the win over the Clippers and despite some troubling signs in that fourth quarter where Lou Williams is in the game, somewhat inexplicably closing despite the Lakers targeting him every single time down the floor, I, I think the Clippers should have some counters to that. I mean, one would just be to not close the game with Lou Williams, but I was surprised they couldn't do a better job of keeping him out of those actions. Like, this, this would happen. Like, LeBron would do the same thing trying to target Steph on the Warriors, and the Warriors did a pretty good job of sort of pre-switching to keep Steph out of those screening actions. And and the Clippers just couldn't do that. They couldn't provide any cover to Lou Williams as the Lakers essentially just targeted him time and time again. And they also couldn't... Like, the hedge and recover stuff and the help and the things that they might be able to do to at least make the Lakers, like, eat a lot of clock while they're trying to get the mismatch they want, they weren't able to do that either. Like, the Lakers were going at the pace that they wanted to go at. And when Lou was coming up to hedge, they were just, like, they were screening with Avery Bradley and KCP, and those guys were slipping to to three-point range. Um, And when they were were outright switching it, obviously LeBron's just, like, able to go to work against Lou Williams. They're just finding so many seams in that defense. And meanwhile, like... You know, Kawhi and PG are being isolated outside of the play and not really able to make an impact. So the thing about this to me is like pretty much any team in the league is going to struggle when the Lakers have a small screen for LeBron. Like they did it all the time in Cleveland. I want the Bucks to do this more with Giannis because I think it could be just as deadly. But the Clippers are one of the teams that I feel like could counter it. I just think they need to have Beverly out there closing instead of Lou Williams. And I don't really think... I don't get it because they don't really need Lou Williams' off-the-dribble creation when they have Paul George and Kawhi on the floor at the end of the game. No, I don't understand it at all. And in fact, the last takeaway in that five takeaways from the Lakers weekend post was about how they picked on Lou. And I ended up by saying the Clippers will need to get him off the floor in crunch time again, like in the playoffs, in a close game. It's just going to have to happen because the it was... Honestly, like I found, like I giggled to myself a couple times as I watched LeBron and the Lakers just ruthlessly pick on Lou Williams down the stretch, and there was multiple times where, like Anthony Davis would come start to set the screen for LeBron, and LeBron would wave him off and like scan the floor, find Lou, and like it was like KCP. It's like yo, Contavious, come set this screen for me because we're gonna destroy this guy right now. It made no sense to me that Doc. You know, Doc is too good of a coach and too good of an X's and O's guy to not have seen that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it does speak to the fact that it was a game in March that maybe we yeah. are putting a little too much stock into. Data and, points. Right. And, you know, there's no way if this game's happening in late May, you know, in a 2-2 series or something, Doc Rivers is not keeping Lou Williams on the floor at that point. At least I hope he's not. Yeah. Because he's just too easy of a target. And particularly in a matchup with the Lakers where... When the Lakers play their best five, there isn't a player on the court that you can pinpoint and say, he's a 100% defensive liability. Let's put this guy in screen and roll action. Let's pick on him. You know, like if they play their best five and it's LeBron, Anthony Davis, Danny Green, Avery Bradley, and one other player, Caruso or. Yeah, and Caruso, like. Kuzma, maybe? Yeah, Kuzma would probably be their weakest defensive link, but I don't think Kuzma factors into their best five, to be honest. Like, I. Kuzma, honestly, defensively, I think has made really impressive strides. I think he tries, right? And, and, and I thought he he was great in that game against yeah. the Clippers. Um, and if he can like hold his own defensively, yeah. that's a game changer. And even Caruso, sure. like Caruso, yeah, like he'll he's going to give up some strength to a lot of guys in his matchups, but he's not he's not the type of like find that guy and attack him 
in a playoff setting the way like a Lou Williams is, right? And the Clippers are too good defensively and have way too many good defensive players to be having Lou Williams as one of their five on the court in that situation. I think they need to play Zubach more. Agreed. I, I, I like I know like they obviously think that Harrell is better. They they like playing smaller and Harrell does a lot of things really, really well. He's a great scorer, he's an energy guy, but they are so starved for rim protection. They're vulnerable on the glass. And I know like when Zubach was in the game and he was guarding A D straight up, like Davis is a lot quicker than him, can get separation, and he hit a couple of jump shots in his face. And you're just going to have to live with that, right? Like, I think that's preferable to Davis getting what he wants inside because Harold just, like, isn't really big enough, and you just don't have as much rim protection as you need. And, like, you know, Zubach isn't, like, some world-beating defender, but on the back line, he's pretty solid, and he gives you some size, and he gives you legitimate rim protection. And I think for him to be playing, I think he played, like, 14 minutes in this game. Like, that just is not enough, I don't think, in this matchup. And, you know, it would have been nice for the Clippers to get somebody on the buyout market or at the deadline who could help them with their lack of rim protection, but they didn't. And so I think Zubac has to be their guy, and I think he just needs to see more burn in this matchup in particular. Here's what I think this game, and I don't think this game should be what taught us anything about this matchup, but I do think what you could have seen in this game is that the Clippers have an Anthony Davis problem in this matchup, and I don't quite know how they're going to solve it. I agree with you that they need to play Zubac more in general, not just in a matchup with the Lakers, but in general. The issue is, against the Lakers and the unique talent of Anthony Davis, they go to Zubac and say, play big. And Anthony Davis isn't really worried. Like, he's good enough to score inside or do whatever a a regular big man would have to do, right? Mm -hmm. And if they go small and the Lakers go smaller and don't have one of McGee or Howard on the floor, and you've got Anthony Davis matching up with Montrez Harrell or Marcus Morris, he can hang with that guy in the defensive end because he's quick enough, and he can absolutely eviscerate them on the offensive end. So I just don't know what the Clippers are going to do about Anthony Davis. And I get that they have a lot of defensive problem solvers and Doc Rivers, and, and they can come up with a way to game plan it. Mm-hmm. But at some point, like sometimes a matchup just there's nothing you can do about it. And I wonder if, you know, we talked about it back in the summer about the front court depth of the Clippers, right? And whether that might be their Achilles heel. I think in this matchup in particular, you're going to see that. And I thought it was interesting, the the third quarter stretch that turned this game for the Lakers was LeBron on the bench, Kawhi and Paul George both on the court against an AD at center lineup without LeBron. And the Lakers won those minutes going away and they kind of, Everything went downhill in a good way for them, right? Yeah, I think maybe, and I'm not convinced that they don't have an answer. I feel like the ace up their sleeve might be Kawhi on AD because he does have the strength to push him off his spot a little bit, maybe not let him get such deep post position. There were a couple times in this game where the Clippers switched Kawhi onto AD and he made things difficult for him in the post. And the other benefit that provides you is like it makes it really dangerous for AD to put the ball on the floor Mm -hmm. and yeah like obviously he still has a significant height advantage and he's going to be able to maybe shoot over Kawhi and maybe grab some offensive rebounds over top of him but I think that might be their best individual matchup and they obviously have enough guys like in Paul George and you know Marcus Morris in a pinch though I do think he's like pretty overrated defender but like they have other guys that they can stick on LeBron in that situation. And maybe if it comes down to it, if the Lakers are going with AD at the five, the Clippers are going even smaller with Marcus Morris at the five. 
letting Kawhi do what he can on AD and rolling with that lineup. And, um, you know, as much as I think Zubac is sort of underrated as a backline defender, he is still vulnerable in space. Uh, the Lakers ran pick and roll at him a couple times early in that game and drew fouls on him. And like LeBron going downhill with a backpedaling Zubac is still going to be trouble for the Clippers. So I think like that's what makes the Clippers so good and so dangerous is there are so many different ways that they can play. And I just feel comfortable that whatever the Lakers throw at him, the Clippers are going to have at least like an acceptable counter. You know what I took away from this game and watching these teams play at like what seemed to be full throttle almost, even though both teams said it was just another game. It was very clear it was not. <laughs> yeah, dude, LeBron's like yeah. primal scream when he finished that game ceiling layup and one. LeBron hitting the deck to outscrap Montrez Harrell of all people for a loose ball. Like yeah. this was not, but, but what I took from watching this game and it, it's not something that's news breaking because you kind of teased me about deciding this back in November already, but there were two contenders in the Western Conference. And I know coming into the year, it was all about like, oh, this season of parody and there's no clear cut. And yeah, like no one's the Warriors of the last few years, 100%. But there were two championship contenders in the Western Conference. And I think there's a lot of good teams in the West, but there is no championship contender in the Western Conference that resides outside of Los Angeles. From a contender standpoint, there's a lot of frauds. I mean, how many championship contenders are there in the East? Fair, maybe one, maybe so. one. But 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 I'm just saying, right? Like it, even in seasons of parity or seasons where you think there's no like two or three teams usually will emerge that are very clearly above the rest. And in the West, in particular, when you watch the two LA teams match up, it is just so clear that no one else in that conference has the goods to hang with those teams. And honestly, maybe no one in the league. I, I still 100% put the Bucks in that group. And maybe they're not like head and shoulders above the Lakers and Clippers, but those three teams to me are clearly like the group of bona fide championship contenders. And there's like a bunch of teams where I think it's, you know, a two to 4% outcome where if everything breaks right for them and things break wrong for a team they're playing against, you know, the Raptors, even the Rockets, just given like the, the variance that they've banked on, you know, if they hit their highest probability outcome, uh, the Celtics, maybe, like the Sixers. If ever, like, if, yeah, I mean, There are all these teams where it's like on the, the very low end, like there's an outside chance. But really, like it's those three teams that I think are a cut above the rest of the league. And those are like the certified championship contenders right now. Okay, answer this question. If, the Lake, if one of the Lakers or Clippers loses to a non-LA team in the West playoffs, mm-hmm. it would be two? I think I got to say Houston and I'm not like, we've talked about this a lot. Like I'm not a huge believer in Houston. Um, I wasn't at the start of the season cause I was really concerned about their defense. I'm still concerned about their defense. I'm not overreacting to this skid that they've had. Just like I was trying not to overreact too much to the hot streak that they had. And this is, goes back to the sort of like recency bias thing. Like with a team like the Rockets in particular, you can't just like ride that roller coaster with them. I mean, you can, or you can just maybe take more of a macro view where you say, this is a team that went all in on variance and that is going to swing both ways. And you can say, oh, well, look, you know, look at this small ball experiment and it's now falling flat on its face. Or you can say, well, James Harden has had like an abysmal shooting stretch and Russell Westbrook missed a game and that has had a lot to do with the losing streak that they're on right now. And rebounding and rim protection are still major vulnerabilities for them and they are extremely reliant on three-point shooting from a bunch of kind of so-so three-point shooters and that doesn't give you a lot of confidence 
at the same time, if you're looking at a team where, like, if they hit their highest probability outcome, can they take down one of the LA teams? I feel like it has to be them. Agreed. Just uh, for context, though, when you talk about that slump, that, yeah, it, it's not the be-all, end-all, but just to put it into context. So since that dramatic win in Boston last Saturday night, they lost to the Knicks at Madison Square Garden, got drilled by the Clippers on national TV, lost in Charlotte, and then got blown out at home by Orlando. That is as as horrible a four-game stretch as any quote-unquote contender will have this season. Yeah, I mean, it's and just like they were maybe playing a bit above their heads, uh, you know, the first few games that they were playing after the trade, I don't think they're nearly as bad as they showed the last few games. I think they're sort of somewhere in the middle, which is a very good but fatally flawed team that if they get red hot from deep and defend their absolute tails off can maybe, maybe swing an upset over one of the LA teams. But there's also a pretty decent chance they flame out in the first round. Yep. And that's, you know, they, they just have probably a lot more variance than any other team that's going to be entering the playoff field. So that's where I'm at with that. Um, do you have anything else to add to any of the stuff we've talked about? Or anything we haven't talked about? I do not. Shout out Panama. Um, all right, so that, that is it for a really eventful week and weekend in the NBA. And we'll be back next week to talk about what I'm sure will be another extremely eventful week. So for now, we're signing off. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the Rock. Pound the Rock.